From Austin Film Festival, this is On Story, a look inside the creative process from today's leading creators, writers, and filmmakers. I'm your host, Barbara Morgan. The Queen's Gambit co-creator, Scott Frank, and Chernobyl researcher Mimi Munson joined us for a conversation about their frequent collaboration and how research plays a crucial part in developing projects. Frank is an Academy Award-nominated screenwriter whose recent project, The Queen's Gambit, won Best Miniseries at the Golden Globes. I spoke with Frank and Munson at the Austin Film Festival. Clips of Godless and The Queen's Gambit, courtesy of Netflix. Support for the On Story podcast comes from Bogle Family Vineyards. Sixth-generation farmers and third-generation winemakers based in Clarksburg, California. Makers of sustainably grown wines that are a reflection of their family values since 1968. Let's talk about Godless, because I'm sure a lot of people have seen Godless. And and that seems like something where it would be rich with research material. How do you jump into that process and where? Godless, which really kind of got us kind of really rolling because it took a very long time to write and a very long time to get made. And on Godless, all I knew is I was going to write a Western. I said to Mimi, I'm going to write a Western. I have no idea what it is. I just really want to write a Western, um, which is dumb. You know, it's a really lame way to start something is <laughs> to pick a genre. You said, I can just see him coming over the mountains and seeing the coast of California and the Pacific Ocean for the first time after all this crazy stuff has happened. But I don't know what the crazy stuff is. I have no idea who he is. I have no idea about his story. I don't even know anybody in the story yet. And so um, a couple things happened. One, um, I read a book about the Mountain Meadows Massacre when in the mid-1800s, the uh, uh, group of Mormons massacred the wealthiest wagon train heading west coming from Arkansas. And there was a ton of interesting things in that book. And then more importantly, Mimi and I, when we would have lunch once a week, once every couple of weeks, we would just, we would try and talk about it whenever we could. And Mimi sits down one day and said, you know what I think would be good? Do something about mining. And I said, okay. Because I, I literally had no ideas at this point. She said, let's do something about mining. And I said, great. And um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller was something I really liked and admired. It was in a mining town. And so we would talk about mining. And Mimi also would give me baskets of books. And for a year, I was instructed only to read Westerns. <laughs> and she said, okay, these are what I think would be the 20 must-read Western. Some are really well-known, some are not. So I, for a year, just so I could get the ear of it, hear how people think and talk, I would read these Westerns. Then something magic happened, two things in a row. One, Mimi sat down at lunch one day and said, yeah, I'm looking at these mining towns and there's a town in Colorado or New Mexico where all the men died in a mine. I guess that used to happen. And so only the women, and I, I went, what? <laughs> she said, yeah, this happens and, you know, it's really interesting. And I said, well, that's our movie. I said, that's amazing. And so that was the first thing that found purchase in terms of story. Then the second thing she did, because Mimi is wonderful, she went to the, I think, the University Research Library at, at UCLA and found all these letters that had been written from the period. And you can't Xerox them. So <clears throat> Mimi rewrote them all by hand. I still have them in the binder, all these letters written in Mimi's hand 
but I could hear how people think and I could get these stories of people's lives that I could then use. My own darling husband. No letter from yesterday's mail. And the stage not running, so I, I do not know whether I have any today or not. You cannot know how I long for my daily crumbs. I feel so th thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly alone here that it, by the most natural pr process, launches my thoughts and desires westward in an untold degree. And so gradually I began to collect scenes and ideas and stuff. And every time we would talk, I, there might be something that she sent me that I would say to Mimi, please go, go look more on this or I want more on that. And we just kept going. So that's how it got started. Because Scott and I had such good communication, I was really able to be very attuned to what was sparking his imagination and what wasn't. So during that process, it was sort of like looking for treasure where I knew exactly what kind of treasure was going to really make it possible for him to fall in love with that part of the story that he needed, whether it was our main female character or our villain or different people. You kind of have your radar out for those kinds of treasures in those giant tunnels that can seem infinite at times. So I would say the first part of my job was to reduce the overwhelm with all of those different possibilities. I also think that when you're talking about raw information, there are rabbit holes. But when you start really tuning into character and the way that the story comes out of the character, it's really an emotional experience to find people who are talking about the most frightening moment in their life, the most important, brave moment in their life, a terrible time when the community came together, a child died and how people responded to that. You know, you find these things where it just takes your breath away for a second and it's not a rabbit hole anymore. It's like you're really in the presence of somebody bearing their soul for lack of a better way to put it. And I think for me and for Scott, those were the moments in all of the things that we read through where we were like, oh, wow, okay, this is a person who really captured the terrible dilemma of being alive in the West in the 1880s when you don't have any comforts from home and you're totally isolated and you feel very lost and sometimes you don't have enough food and you see people dying left and right just trying to get to a city or get somewhere safe. You're going to be all right now, ma'am. Bill, we have to get these people out of here. So I don't know, Scott, if you would agree with this, but I think the, the more you look for those kinds of um, vulnerable humanity moments in writing, which is rare, you know, even in the journals and the letters, and of course, in, in history books, a lot of it is very intellectual. So that's another part, I think, of this different kind of creative research that we're talking about, where you really differentiate, where information is something I try to filter out and carve out to just 
be context. But when I found a writer who was really hitting it over and over again, where it just took your breath away and gave you that feeling in your heart, like you almost get tears in your eyes at a certain moment. Some historians can do that. Some grandmas writing a memoir on their typewriter and it shows up in a thrift shop somewhere that shows up on ABE books. You know, you get it from the most surprising sources. Those were the moments, literarily speaking, that became the North Star that the information would then be built around. But I think in the wrong hands, Scott, Mimi could be the greatest tool for procrastination ever invented. So can you talk about how you filter through that? Because that's just such incredible information, you know, like. Yeah, it makes me procrastinate a lot. I want it to because I want to be inspired because part of the writing process is procrastination. Part of the writing process is going down certain rabbit holes, is spending for me months on the wrong thing. I can't tell you how often I do that. In fact, I can tell you, I do it on everything I've ever written. And you don't know where you're going to find things. You have no idea where the next idea or, or thing that's going to inspire you so much is going to come from. So you want to get lost in it so that you feel it and you understand it and you hear it so that when you write it, it's coming from the inside out. The problem is when you just grab onto facts and write and it comes from the outside in, then you get lost in a way that's not good because now you're just telling story to show how much you know about something. The other thing to Mimi's points about things that would pop up, I mean, there's a whole subplot about, you know, in Godless about Alice having this flood where she loses her husband in the flood and ends up alone and ends up with the Paiutes. That was from a letter. On the way back from the station, Henry wants to take a ride around the property, show off his land. Our land, he said. After a while, the horse... Pulling the buggy starts getting antsy. I look up and see this strange cloud. Black with green around the edges. Henry says, looks like we got a bit of rain coming. Next thing I knew, the cloud was gone. Just vanished. Now the horse starts to rear in the traces. Henry helps me out of the wagon when I hear a rumble. I turn around and see a six-foot wall of water coming right at us. Henry, the horse, the buggy, they all got washed away right in front of me. That whole story she tells was right there in a letter that Mimi gave me. And in fact, the letters were so good, I wrote a whole love scene where she's teaching the guy how to read from reading the letters that Mimi found. And the hardest thing was picking which letters. You're always on the make for things. And the only way you can have the happy accidents that give you story is to, is to take the time and get lost for a while. I want to talk a little bit about balancing the history in a film, the truth of the history as opposed to the truth of the story. How do you two work that? It's tricky because some of that is a directing question, not a writing research question. And and I actually would want to make sure that everything is historically accurate as a director. And I know Mimi on Master and Commander in particular was looking at everything from buttons to coats to she was in everything. But once I'm in production in terms of what's historically accurate that way, if it's story related in the writing process, we're talking about it. And you know what? You can't have that event because it hadn't happened yet. So they can't, he would have to be a certain age. And if he's that age, then he couldn't have been, he would only have been whatever. So there's those kinds of conversations all, all that we have all, all the time. 
you know, and the authenticity question, which was a big one on Queen's Gambit, for example, which is why I had Bruce Pandolfini and Gary Kasparov as advisors, was to make sure that all the chess, that was a very technical thing. So the chess had to be accurate. Why not advance the knight? Why isn't he defending against the rook? What's going to become of the backward pawn? You replay the game so you can feel the wins for yourself. Read game books like Reinfeldt that are full of queen sacrifices and melodrama. You know from your tournament experience you can't rely on your opponent setting himself up for a queen sacrifice or a surprise mate with a knight and a rook. How do you organize all of this? Because you said the first person you were working with gave you a book report, but you're talking about something that's so much broader than a book report here. It's got so many different layers of information. How do you lay that out? I'm trying to imagine in my head. It's actually no different than if I'm starting a script without research and just thinking in all from all directions at once. You just let it all come. I will use lines and things that I think are beautiful from a letter or from some, you know, historical report or something, you know, that I've read about. I'm, you know, mostly creating my own dialogue and my own thing. But if I read something like that, that's just so authentic, you know, and personal accounts and things like that, I love that stuff. And then I will change it to fit the story I'm telling or to do what it's doing. But I, I'm really inspired by that stuff. And sometimes there are descriptions that are of the time it's how I wrote the script. I wanted to write the script so that it, it was was obviously just a script, but it also felt like it was it was of the time in a certain way. In terms of what you just asked about all of this material, I just collect it. And then I begin going through it and write down just the stuff that really, I have notebook after notebook that I fill up with quotes, with, with whatever ideas. Um, and I write it all by hand at first because I need to keep changing the medium so that I can look at it differently for me. And then I put it into a document in the script. Well, actually, I'm going to go back to Godless because that went through iterations, as I recall, right? Mm -hmm. You were first going to do a film. It was just going mm -hmm. to be a film. And then it became, what, seven episodes? Mm -hmm. And so was that material all already there? for you to do that? It was. What's interesting is there, I could have done, you know, a lot more and it was supposed to be six episodes. And then we, I wrote six scripts for it, but in the cutting room, we made it into seven episodes. And by the way, the Queen's Gambit suffered the same fate because I clearly don't learn. But the thing about Godless is we had a ton of things. The script was always very long and there were things we cut and there were subplots we did. And there was not a lot once to, in the transition, Mimi had really done the bulk of the heavy lifting. I'm trying to think how much there were things here and there as I was writing. I was definitely asking her about this. And Mimi gave me some new books, those series of stories about women in the West who live on their own. I remember you gave me a few different kinds of new things that I hadn't read. There were a couple books that I hadn't read from the basket she'd originally gave me that I went and read. And so I changed it during prep mostly. But that was a that was a perfect example. I think we laugh every time we work on a project. I feel like we discover ten movies, or now it's serious. But you know, it's because when you find these veins of really rich material, you find incredible characters in every direction that you can't even use. So I mean, we we always say like, oh my god, we left more great stories on the sort of cutting room floor in the research process. That so anytime it has to be expanded, it's already. Mm -hmm there. 
I'm really interested in sort of the comparison, from your perspective, contrast of a project like Chernobyl and a project like Godless, because Godless is really elements of the truth, but in Scott's mind, right? I mean, it's something that is wholly of, of him. Chernobyl, obviously, you know, historical incident. But what did that look like from the perspective of research compared to the finding the story in a, in a fiction, piece of fiction? Yeah, so Chernobyl was a really interesting and great example of a different side of the job. For me, I think Craig has somebody like me, whose name is Jacques Lesko, who did a lot of the preliminary research and then all the script readers. So she has a relationship with Craig that's kind of like the way Scott and I work together. But they got to a point because Jacques is also producing and doing all this other stuff and she's not, you know, she and I talk all the time. I mean, she's she doesn't do exactly what I do. So they kind of called me in after the pilot and the probably the first couple of scripts were already written. And they really needed to fill in story and character. And they also needed a lot of, so I call it sort of like deep state research. At a certain point, you have to get really, really aggressive and go in and find things that nobody wants you to know about. It's more of the investigative journalism side of it. Um, Craig didn't have a lot of time. And he also needed these things from Ukraine and from Russia that were classified. And a lot of the people were dead or had been, for instance, the miners who were digging out from under the reactor to save that later catastrophe with the water leaking down into the water table. We needed to find personal stories about those guys because like, like Scott was describing, it just came off as a history lesson or a, a sort of enhanced documentary. So I found a friend of mine who speaks Ukrainian and Russian because you needed to be able to speak both because there's so much tension between the two countries and they're trying to stop each other. So, you know, you'd call one museum and they would say, well, the Russians have that. And then you call the Russian museum about the disaster and that's just full of disinformation and baloney. And so then I had to go into chat rooms and try to find Ukrainians who were talking amongst themselves about things that had happened with the Russians when the Russians came in. And almost every project I've ever worked on, we've run into a really weird area where there's serious political tensions that have developed around an issue. So then it's a matter of finding my (laughs) weird friend who happens to be total genius and speak these languages or know people who know people who know people and you have to kind of get in there. So on. So that was how what I was able to do for Chernobyl. I, I wasn't their primary person, but I did come in and problem solve in some of these areas. And we found uh, through my friend sitting next to me translating in these chat rooms, we found survivors who actually had been there. We found a minor who was still alive. We found we were able to read descriptions that he was writing to his family members on it. And so the internet, actually, I give it a lot of grief because it doesn't have a great deal of depth in terms of historical information. But when it comes to personal stories, you can find real treasures. And um, that was my primary role for them on, on Chernobyl. So what treasures did you find for Ron Burgundy? On that one, they had the script pretty much set, but what we found, which was so great, was uh, we met a former newscaster in San Diego who was literally like Ron Burgundy in real life. We had reels and reels and reels and reels and reels of nighttime local network news that we went through. And I also, uh, they asked me to do all the, so if you watch the film, you'll see little movies on in the background on the, there are a lot of jokes on TVs in the background of a lot of those scenes. So 
um, I was providing context for a lot of that. And like the flying squirrel, the, 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 the water skiing squirrel footage and, and, and clothes. And because I was on the production through editing on, on Ang. Uh-huh. on Anchorman originally. So yeah, all kinds of little clips. So Mimi, are there tools, like any particular tools or resources that you end up going back to again and again, you know, in your research process? You know, I have to say that my favorite tool now, it used to be going in in person to the card catalogs and going into the stacks, which I still highly recommend as the first step, because when you're in stacks, you can do something you can't do online which is find things by accident and see books because the way that the Dewey Decimal System works, you're going through these wonderful shades of shifting subjects and changes and transitions between subjects. So, you know, the fact that like training horses was going into mining and those were next to each other in the stacks, you know, would we ever have found that if we were just doing searches on Google to Scott's point, you're already good. When you do a search, you're already narrowing yourself just by that little search that you do so tragically. So the first thing is just to go into a place in person, but of course we can't do that that much right now, unfortunately. So it's a, um, my favorite next thing is abebooks.com. It's an incredible resource. It's a lot of times better than libraries uh, in my experience, especially the online catalogs, although it's good. The libraries have gotten better, but ABE Sellers will often have screenshots of pages of books, or you can call the seller and they'll send you screenshots. Um, incredible amount of historical material on there that are being sold by random antique book dealers or even thrift shops. And sometimes they'll have single letters, diaries. There, if you if you work with the search terms on ABE, you can find incredible museum quality historical society kind of archives. A lot of historical societies or local libraries will liquidate their collections and they end up on ABE. So you can find primary sources there that are really uh, incredibly valuable. How did research play into something like Minority Report? Oh, that was huge. There was so much research on that. We had a huge think tank ahead of, you know, while I was still starting the script where we invited all the guys from the the center at MIT, the media, the new media center, what do they call it, that Undercoffler started, you know, all those guys were there. We had the guy who wrote Generation X. We had all these people who were kind of not necessarily futurists, but were forward-looking individuals in their fields, um, architects and, um, and so on. And we just talked about what the world would look like. We talked about how something so uh, draconian could exist. We talked about what is the biggest problem going to be in the future. And by the way, to a person back in 1999, when we had this think tank, to a person, they said global warming. And it was fascinating. And so we did that and tons of research came from that. The other thing that happened is the art department. Um, Alex was an amazing, the production designer was doing a ton of his own research and he would share it with me. I would watch some science fiction. I wasn't really a big science fiction film person before that. I'd seen some, but I wasn't really steeped in the, I definitely hadn't read it, which is always helpful. So I started to read more of it because I was working from a tiny little short story. So there was a ton of research. And then the thing that Stephen said to me over and over is just write it like it's happening now. 
someone answers a phone, they pick up a phone. We'll describe what the phone is later. We'll figure it out later. Just kind of do it. And then there were certain things plot-wise, though, that I got from the think tank, like privacy. They said the most valuable commodity in the future will be privacy and that they will be stealing, taking, using all of your information, not to spy on you, but to sell to you. And so I ran with that in a huge way. That changed the whole thing for me. It was constant barrage of advertising. I thought, oh, this is going to be great. And so it was a huge part of that process. Huge, huge, huge. Helped me a lot. How do you learn to do what you do? We've learned by going along in each project and having to invent a totally new approach for each story. And um, every single character in every single story requires you to become somebody new to understand them and to shapeshift into their world. And those are just different characters in one story. And then you go into different projects over the years. And, you know, Scott, now that you're directing, it's even more intense. Every single project you work on, you're, you're seeing an entire world built that demands a different response from you. So having the time to really go into those worlds and not just do a kind of a superficial Google type search where it's a very flat sort of product that's going to the writers. I think to be a good researcher, you can't just stay home and read books and be on your computer. You have to go out and meet people and roll up your sleeves and go into these worlds as much as you can. The writers often, especially at Scott's level and the level of the, his your friends who you've referred me to over the years, you guys are so busy and in such demand that you don't really have the same opportunity to go and become anonymous and slip into a context that, you know, spend a week or two, like going into an orphan, you know, a, a foster care system, um, seeing what it's like in prisons, you know, the way an investigative journalist would. So I think uh, some of it has just been that feeling that Scott and I have both had like, this is not enough. What we found is good. It's led us in a good direction, but it's still not enough. And so never stopping and getting complacent. Like Scott never lets anybody get complacent because he's never complacent. So I think that that's been a big part of driving us to finding deeper and more interesting uh, resources too. On Story is brought to you in part by the Alice Kleberg Reynolds Foundation, a Texas family providing innovative funding since 1979. This project is supported in part by the Cultural Arts Division of the City of Austin Economic Development Department, the Texas Commission on the Arts, the U.S. Institute of Museum and Library Services, and the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. This program is also made possible in part by a grant from Humanities Texas, the state affiliate for the National Endowment for the Humanities. On Story is supported in part by Too Far Media. Immersive Story Experiences by Rich Chaparro. The show is produced by myself, Barbara Morgan, and Katie Turner. Our associate producers are Colin Heyer and Maya Perez. Our editors are Jamal Knox and Travis Neely. Audio capture by Travis Kennedy. Music is by Brian Ramos. Production assistance comes from Sound Lab Inc., Travis Kennedy, and KUT 90.5 in Austin. Go to austinfilmfestival.com to find out more about the Austin Film Festival and Conference each October. Until next time, I'm Barbara Morgan, and this has been Austin Film Festival's On Story.